are the, are the events in the universe random? Or is there order to our universe? We mentioned last week the idea of karma. It is quite popular in our culture to think about the events that happen to us or that happen to others as nothing more than a cosmic karma. What goes around comes around. As we think about the universe and the orderliness to it, we come to the question about God. Is God involved in the minute details of our lives? Does God care about the day-to-day activities of His creation? Is He involved in the intricate operations of the world, or is He distant from it? Is He involved? Or uninvolved. The Bible reveals that God is not distant from His creation, but that He is distinct from His creation. One world philosophy known as deism teaches that God is distant from His creation. In other words, God is the creator, the intelligent designer, but that God is hands-off. He got the cogs of the wheel moving, and then He's just allowing the chips to fall where they may. Another form of world philosophy is known as pantheism. This is the worldview that God is not distinct from His creation, but that He is His creation. That is, that God is a part of His creation. That He is in all of it, and all of it is in Him. But then, there is the biblical worldview. The view that God is not distant, but distinct. He's, far, he's not far from it as the deist believes, but he's not in it as the pantheist believes. So he is distinct from his creation. He's involved, but he is not his creation. He is separate from it. Friend, as Christians, we do well to think well about this. We should think How does the world view the events of our lives when we turn on the news, when we open our Facebook feed and we see the unfolding narrative and drama that is our life and the lives of those around us, we do well to think about this subject. And thankfully, the Bible is not silent on this matter. The doctrinal stance that we're thinking of, the doctrine is the providence of God. The way He provides for His creation. But there is yet another layer to God's providence 
And it is the word sovereign. Sovereign. The word sovereign, of course, comes to us from Old English. When we think of a sovereign, we think of a king ruling his kingdom. He is sovereign over his kingdom. Or that this is a sovereign nation. That is, that we have our own rule and reign that no one can tell us. So, so the French government can't tell the United States government how it's going to operate. We, uh, the United States government makes that decision. No different do we go and tell France how to do their business. We're a sovereign nation. And so when we think about God's sovereignty, we think about His kingly rule over the universe. That the cosmos is God's kingdom where He rules over all. There is no one greater or more powerful than Him. That means that you and I function under His rule. His reign. But what about free will? What, what about our choices? How do you and I reconcile between God's sovereign rule and His providential care and the free choices that you and I make every day? We turn left and right. We go up. We go down. We buy this and we don't buy that. How do these things intersect? How is it that we can say that God is in control and that man is free? My friend, that's what we want to think about this morning. A very deep subject, but one that I hope through this story shines a bright light on this particular doctrinal truth. Well, to catch us up a bit of where we've gone, we last week started a new study in the book of Ruth. If you're uh, just joining us today or you missed last week, welcome. We're in Ruth chapter 2. Over the next uh, several weeks, we're considering in four weeks this wonderful book about God's providence, about this particular thing. The book of Ruth tells the story of a young widowed woman named Ruth who is also an impoverished outcast. She's an immigrant that has immigrated, she has traveled from her homeland in Moab to Israel. She is an outsider. But more than that, she's impoverished. She has nothing. Her and her mother-in-law struggle to provide for themselves as they take up residence in a small, insignificant agricultural town named Bethlehem. But the hand of God as we saw last week, is working to orchestrate a great story of redemption. If you've ever read, or or maybe you read ahead in this book and you saw how it ended, it is a story of redemption. A young immigrant is rescued by a redeemer named Boaz, who we will be introduced to today. And throughout the story, we are reminded that God is still at work to redeem His people. These were terrible times in the people of God. There was a refrain that we saw there in the book of Judges, which is the time period in which this takes place, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. You see, God's people had rejected Him as king. God had set up the nation of Israel where He would be their king, where He would sovereignly rule and reign, and they said, no thank you. 
we're going to do life our own way. And, and life spiraled out of control. And if you've ever read through the book of Judges, we don't need to go into any detail this morning, but let's just say their sins were of the heinous nature. The most heinous nature. Almost uh, embarrassingly so. If you've read through those final chapters in Judges, your face turns red. You're embarrassed that this story is even in your Bible. It is that grotesque and evil and wicked. But God, in the midst of his people rebelling against him, there was, if you will, a light shining in Bethlehem. Something something glorious. God was, was still working. There were people who still obeyed the word. Even when everyone else was, was going their own way, there was a man named Boaz who believed the word of God, who sought to do things God's way rather than his own way. And through his obedience, God is taking them from a place of affliction to blessing, from bitterness to joy. Although they find themselves in a time of rampant wickedness, God was a covenant-keeping God. Though his people abandoned him, he wouldn't abandon his people. And this young Moabite woman would be woven into the greatest story of redemption this world had ever known and will ever know. For through her will come David's greater son, King Jesus. Someone insignificant and unimportant in the eyes of the world is used by God to bring about His great redemption. This is what I want us to think about this morning as we think about God's loving kindness to those who take refuge under His wings. What does it look like for you and I not merely to give lip service to the sovereignty of God, To say we believe that God is sovereign. What does it look like for our lives to submit to Him as the sovereign King of the universe? With that in mind, I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. It's found on page 222 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you just to take that out. Open it to page 222, follow along with us, and then take that copy home as our gift to you. Read it and know God better through it. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she had happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they said, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women, lest let your eyes be on the field they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowed to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also put out some of from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of, of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked, and said, The man's name, whom I work today, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young man, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Friend, I wonder, do you find this story surprising that it's even in your Bible. Perhaps you're thinking, well, what great truth can we learn from a couple characters who lived thousands of years ago, who went about their day-to-day lives and in the midst of it were able to provide for themselves through the ordinary means of, of harvesting barley and grain, barley and wheat. Friend, I think the point that the author has for us to consider this morning could be summarized that there are no accidents with God. There are no accidents with God. 
I believe from verse 3, you find the main idea. Uh, The narrator tips his hand to us a bit. He shows us what he's trying to get us to understand. We're told that she went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers, and she happened to come to the field of Boaz. She just happened to come to the one field in all the fields that were there in the surrounding region of Bethlehem. She just happened to upon the one field with the one person that could save her life, literally. No, there are no accidents with God. He providentially brings about His purposes in the lives of all people. In our time this morning, I want us to consider really two overarching points. Number one, God's providence over the ordinary affairs of men. So we're going to front load the sermon with theology. Biblical theology about the providence of God. Then I want to take you back to the story and show you how God uses this. How it works itself out in the free choices of men and women as both a means to display His kindness and His care over His people. So if you take notes, there's two points. Number one, God's providence over the ordinary affairs of men displays His kindness. The point that we understand as Christians that the Bible teaches is that God is not distant, but distinct from His creation. That God is involved in the ordinary, not merely the extraordinary. That the everyday mundane events of your life and my life, that God is involved. He is working in our lives. This is what we see through this word, happened. That is, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, and this gleaning would have been uh, picking up the scraps that were left behind through the harvest process, that by providing for her, she would then be providing for Naomi and saving their lives physically from hunger. And we see in this particular story that the narrator has us thinking from various perspectives. The perspective of Ruth, the perspective of Boaz, and the perspective of God. And all of which as we consider the the narrator and as you heard the characters speaking, each of them throughout the story are attributing the, the events of their lives as coinciding with God's work. Even Boaz's conversation in verse 4 with his reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Or even considering Boaz's own words to Ruth when he speaks of her, char- of her character, says of Ruth that you have come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. As we think about God's providence, uh, one author, his name is Wayne Grudem, he provides, I think, one of the best 
definitions on the providence of God. He writes this, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. In other words, we believe, based on the scripture, that God gives us air to breathe, and then God withholds air. Uh, If you want to think more about this, Psalm 139 would be a great place for you just to go and meditate on the way that God upholds us throughout our day. He gives us the air to breathe. He gives us everything we need. Number two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinct properties to cause them to act as they do. Friend, have you ever considered that the reason why you do the things you do and make the choices that you make are because of certain events that have occurred in your life? Have you ever considered the fact that your tastes are motivated more not by social experiments, but rather because of the events that God has put in your life? Finally, Grudem says he directs them to fulfill his purposes. Friend, this is what we sang earlier in a Christian's daily prayer. As morning dawn and day awakes, to you I bring my need. O gracious God, my source of strength. And you, I live and breathe. There, there the songwriter is acknowledging what we're thinking about here, the province. Each hour is yours by wisdom planned, each deed empowered by sovereign hands. God is mysteriously orchestrating the events of our lives. Ruth's work was a fulfillment of Naomi's own prayer back in chapter 1. She had, she had pleaded that the Lord would provide for them. And Naomi concluded that God's hands were in their life. Now, he, she was wrongly interpreting them that God was against them. But nonetheless, she recognizes that God is involved in the affairs of men and women. Boaz himself points us to God's providence in Ruth chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Friend, you're beginning to understand that when we think of God's providence, we also want to think about man's responsibility. That yes, God is sovereign, He's ruling, He is caring, He's providing, but there are still men and women making choices just as Boaz attributes. As we consider our passage this morning, I think it is very evidently important that we understand that God is the one who is telling the story, that He is the main character not even the characters that we find in our text today. Notice here also, as we consider God's providence, the way that He upholds and accomplishes His purposes. You might wonder, well, how does this story really fit within the broader story of the Bible? Is this just sort of an introduction to 1 Samuel? Let me tip your hand. Let me, let me just sort of get to the end here for just a moment. 
sort of fast forward, if you will. If, if you were to read ahead, and perhaps you did, you'll find at the very end of this book is the genealogy of David. And you might say, well, that's strange. What's David have to do with this story? Well, Ruth was David's grandmother. Oh, I understand. David was the greatest king in Israel. He's the one that God appointed to be king to rule and reign. And then we know from Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus comes from this lineage, from this line. You might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, friend, if you understand the Bible is a story of redemption, it begins, the story begins with God creating the universe and creating man and women uh, to reflect His glory in His creation. And they do that for some time until Adam and Eve get this wild idea to live life their own way. And they say, God, we don't want you to be king. We want the crown. We want to be king over our lives. And God said, this is very unfortunate because now I can't be around you. I can't live with you. And so he banishes them from the Garden of Eden. Removes them from his presence. And he condemns them to death. And he promises them in the midst of this judgment that there would come one from Eve who would crush the serpent who had tempted them to rebel against God. And the story of the Bible from that point forward is about the seed that would come to crush the ancient serpent. So as you read through the book of Genesis, you are confronted right out of the gate in chapter 4 the two sons of Adam and Eve. And you have one of the sons murder the other son. Well, now, what are we going to do? Clearly, both are disqualified. One's dead and one's a murderer. And then they have another son. His name is Seth. And it's through the line of Seth. And then as the story unfolds, then comes Abraham. And from Abraham, Isaac. And Isaac, you have Jacob. And from Jacob, the twelve sons of Israel. And then from one of those sons, not all twelve, one, Judah. And you say, well, Judah, he's a, he's a real impressive character, isn't he? He, he? he goes and has a child with his daughter, with his stepdaughter. What is, or with his son's wife, his daughter-in-law, what is wrong with you, God? You would choose Judah over Joseph? Don't you know that Joseph is a righteous man? Joseph is an upstanding citizen. While he was afflicted in all ways, he did not... Of all the boys, God chooses, chooses Judah. Well, Judah is Boaz's great-grandfather. You're like, oh my goodness, this family line is a whole mess. And the story continues all the way down to Jesus. God was orchestrating the events of His people to bring about His purposes. Ruth couldn't die because Ruth was going to give birth 
to the Son that would give birth to the next Son and the next Son. You see, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. The story of the Bible is a story about how God is going to save a people for His own possession. Friend, you want to believe in the sovereignty of God. You must believe in the sovereignty of God. If not, this whole Bible makes completely no sense at all. It's just randomness. It's world philosophy, not biblical theology. God is at work. He accomplishes, as the Apostle Paul says, all things according to the counsel of His will. This is what God is doing. He is bringing about His redemptive purposes such then that we can say and believe that God is in control of all things. Friend, do you believe this revelation of God? This is His character. He's revealing Himself in His Word as a God who is involved. Even in small and insignificant ways, He is behind all the mountain and the anthill. He knows it all. This is what is we heard earlier in Josh's prayer of praise that That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 Friend, will you submit to this truth about God? Will you trust Him in faith that even though we cannot understand, though it is difficult, perhaps even painful, we learn to trust His guiding hand. This is what we see in that hymn we sang earlier, I will wait for you. I'll wait for you. On your word, I will rely. Why? Because even in the darkest places, God is still there. God is still in control. He still reigns. This is what the Apostle Peter writes. In this you rejoice. What are we rejoicing about, Peter? What's so exciting, Peter? Please tell me, what, where is there going to be joy? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We are a peculiar people. We don't ask for suffering, but we do see God's hand in suffering. We trust and rejoice that though we are grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may be night for you now. But friend, remember, there is coming a day when the morning star will dawn and it will be light forevermore. That though your nights may be filled with tears of grief and sorrow and pain and anguish, that God is still good 
And He is reigning over all. Let's look at the text again from a different perspective. Namely, our responsibility in the midst of the everyday. If God is truly in control, what are we to do? Just sit back in our lazy boys and allow things just to pass by? This is what the church in Thessalonica wrongly believed as they uh, applied their over-realized eschatology. They said, Jesus is coming again. Let's quit our jobs. Let's uh, cash out our 401ks and let's drink pina coladas until Jesus comes. And Paul is like, "Mm, that's not how it works. We have to continue our day-to-day. We have to continue uh, in the midst of God's providence and in the midst of His rule. We have to obey. And what we see wonderfully unfolded before us in chapter 2. And and, and you really have got to get a sense of how bad things are. If you were just to turn a few pages over in the book of Judges, we we won't look at this story, but I'll leave that to your own reading. It is bad. (laughs) It's, it's, it's real bad. The, the, the wickedness that we see displayed in these final chapters uh, really rivals Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it would make the most heinous one in Sodom you know, blush as he thinks about what these Israelites are up to. Things have truly spun out of control. But again, it was like a light was dawning. As if there was a glimmer of hope among the people of God. As we see the obedience and faithfulness of these characters unfold. First, we see the character of Boaz. Right out of the gate, the the author writes there in verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. We see a number of things. Number one, he was worthy. God was upon this man's lips even in the darkest of times. His reputation spoke for itself. Even as he interacts, as I pointed out earlier, with his um, workers, he says, God be with you and, and you with him. He was about obeying the Word of God. Where everyone else had kind of abandoned the law of God, we see that he is seeking to obey it. You and I, we read this story and we think, "Eh, there's just some things going on here that are so foreign to us. Of course, there was no social security system, no welfare state. What were these poor immigrants to do? What was this poor immigrant to do? She was in a foreign land. She was poor. She had no husband. She had no one to take care of her. Naomi was up in age. She's not going to remarry and have more kids. And who's going to marry a Moabite woman? A foreigner. No one. In fact, we can get a sense of how bad things are. Even in in Boaz saying, you better stay close. Because if you drift off to the wrong field, you'll most likely be assaulted. You'll most likely be taken advantage of. You're a foreigner. They're they're, they're not going to treat you well. They're not going to care for you. Immigration? No, no, no. We're not for immigration in this particular country. Uh, We will put you into indentured slavery. Even though the law forbid it. But then comes Boaz. 
You see, God had provided, he had set up in the law provisions that were to be given to his people, and particularly the poor. And we see Boaz obeying that. Now, he could have, he could have easily identified Ruth and said, listen, uh, you're a foreigner. And it's made clear even in her own words there in verse 10. She says, why would you take notice of me since I am a foreigner? In other words, Boaz would have been completely within the rights of the law to say, you're not an Israelite, you cannot glean in my field. But he welcomes her. We can see even his character on display in his own servants, in that they allowed her to come. You can see that his character was rubbing off on them. He demonstrates extraordinary kindness towards Ruth, beyond the normal expectations He obeyed not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. We see that even in the the meal there at the end of the story, there in verse 14 through 16. At mealtime, what does Boaz do? He says, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. This is all extravagant. This is all above and beyond. This is nothing that Boaz was contractually required to do under the law. Where do you see his character beginning to, to shine forth? He's blessing this, this young woman. He, he's not saying, hey, you're, you're welcome to pick a few scraps up from the field. In fact, he even commands his servants to pull out what they had hard work, labored all day to do. He says, undo some of those and throw them out there for her. He even allows her to take the abundance of food that is left over. Ruth and Boaz's character here reflect the kindness of God in their lives. God was on full display in these two individuals who were seeking the will of the Lord. This is what we see in Ruth and her character all throughout. Helping to Naomi, hey, we're not, I'm not going to sit around begging. I'm going to go and work. She goes in the field and works. The servants report that she's a hard worker. She, she worked with just a little rest. She wasn't looking for a handout. She was, she was a hard worker. She was seeking to trust the Lord. And that's made clear in Boaz's confirmation in verses 11 and 12 when he says to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, verse 11, since the death of your husband has been fully told me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. In other words, she put herself in the most vulnerable situation that anyone in the ancient world could do. And it's all because, as Boaz says, you have come to trust and to find refuge under the wings of the Lord. They were displaying God's providential cares even as they lived their life under the obedience of His Word. Friend, I wonder how our character is displayed in a world that does not love God's Word. They didn't wait for the world around them to warm up to God, to obey God, to display His kindness and goodness in the lives of others. It was was a dark time. The clouds were everywhere. It was a wicked time, but yet they, they entrusted themselves to God's providence. They reflected God's kindness to those around them. Friend, I wonder how much we could do the same in our own community here. 
We ought not wait till this place gets better to decide, hey, we, we should get involved to show kindness to those around us. Even how we think about those who are poor, who are widows, orphans, refugees, even in our own community, do we extend the same kindness that we see displayed in these characters? I don't simply want to moralize this story, but, but friend, there is something to be exemplified in these characters. They're the reason they're in your Bible. This is what it looks like to be a people of God who obey the Word of God. And we can say all day long that we're Bible-believing Christians, uh, but friend, we ought to act like it. We ought to be about the kind of care that we see displayed here in the lives of these characters. Showing kindness to one another in our own congregation, extending love and care and compassion. Uh, friend, you might be a great giver, but, but I challenge you to be like Boaz, an extravagant giver. Yes, I've met you. Well, the Bible says we're to give 10%, and I've been doing that. Well, that's wonderful. The Bible doesn't say that, um, but uh, it does say that you're to be a generous giver. Are you generous in your giving? Or are you just seeking to do the bare minimum? Friend, as Christians, we ought to be generous people. Because God has dealt so generously with us. Because we have taken refuge under His wings. The salvation that He provides for us. This was the basis by which Paul taught the church in Corinth to be generous in giving. And I don't mean merely financially generous to the congregation uh, by supporting the preaching of the Word through your your offerings. I mean generous with one another. Blessing one another. Encouraging one another. Friend, do you believe that God is at work in all things? Last week I mentioned the story of Joseph and, and I bring it up again just not to repeat myself but, but to, to again look at that story in a way that I hope we understand how the intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility come together. He was banished by his own brothers, sold into slavery, wrongly accused, sentenced to prison, forgotten, but in all the evil that he experienced by the hand of others, he continued to trust the Lord. He even was restored and appointed to the highest position in, in Egypt where he could have used that position to inflict tremendous pain upon those who had inflicted. I mean, the cupbearer, he, he, he could have just gone down. Potiphar, where's that Potiphar's wife at? Bring her out here. Let's talk to her. I mean, he could have inflicted all types of terrible things on the people who had hurt him. And even as he said to his own brothers, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He said, don't, don't fear. Don't be afraid, brothers. I'm not going, going to exact some vengeance on you because I am, I am in the place of God. You see, God brings about his own purposes for his own glory. His hand is everywhere. And the author of Genesis concludes with these words. It says, thus Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Isn't it wonderful to know 
that when you and I obey the word, that we are an expression of God's providential kindness in the lives of those around us. Oh, we pray that God might help us to not only trust his providence, but display it and his kindness through our own acts of kindness to one another. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to know your word better, uh, to trust your plan and purpose for our lives, even now, even in the midst of affliction and suffering, to entrust that you will see us through, that you will give us strength to endure for your glory and our good in Christ.